Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the late 1600s, there was a Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter. He wrote a famous book called The Reformed Pastor. In that book, he tells this story about his own congregation. He pastored a church in England at a place called Kidderminster. If you can imagine your church being called Kidderminster, it's one of the names I have in reserve for small groups as small groups grow. Eventually, there will be a small group named Kidderminster, so get, get in now or you could find yourself in, in the Kidderminster small group. But at Kidderminster, everything was great. It was idyllic. Baxter would go on Sundays to preach, and, and the people would throng into the church, and they would sing, and they would listen attentively to his preaching, and he had every reason in the world to feel satisfied until he started asking questions. He got this idea to start talking to the people in his congregation. He would go to their homes and and, and ask them about their faith, and they would ask him questions as well. And when that dialogue began, Baxter suddenly discovered that things were not as they seemed. That in fact, he didn't pastor a church full of perfect Christians, he pastored a church full of heretics. And he was encouraged. Not because they were heretics, but because now he actually knew. Like for years, he'd been content to just do his thing and hope for the best, but now he actually knew what he was facing. He knew what people actually believed, and he could do something about it. But it only happened once he was willing to ask questions and willing to be asked questions as well. You know from the way that we began this service this morning that that we're not afraid of people asking questions. Uh, We encourage people to ask questions because we know that it doesn't always all make sense. Like I believe that as much of Scripture as we're meant to understand, we can understand, and it does hold together and make sense. But having said that, I realize that, that for all of us, there are parts of it that just don't. We don't understand, or we understand wrongly. We can't fit the pieces together. How would we ever know? How would we ever change that if it wasn't okay to talk about it? If it wasn't okay to admit the stuff I I don't understand or I don't agree with or whatever, if you can't talk about it, you can't do anything about it. I don't think it's an accident that when you turn to Romans chapter 3, you find Paul pausing to take questions. He's given us a lecture, a speech, a sermon in Romans 1 and 2 talking about sin, the sinfulness of the Gentile world, the sinfulness of the Jewish world, how we are all together under condemnation because of our sin. And now at the beginning of chapter 3, he pauses and he takes questions from the audience. Problem is, though, the audience isn't there to ask questions. So as he's writing the epistle, he has to anticipate the questions that his teaching is, is going to bring up and then interact with them. And so that's what he does. And that's why the text has been organized the way that it has. As I said, the, the words are the same, but I've organized them in, in, in a Q&A form so that you can see that in this text, in these eight verses, we actually have four clusters of questions that are being asked. 
and then answered. So it goes question and answer, question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. So let's take a look at this. First question, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. There's more to say about that, and he will say more later, but now he takes another question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He's quoting David there, Psalm 51. Third question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And here Paul inserts a little note, parenthetically, just so you know. He says, I speak in a human way. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes. Answer, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Fourth question. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Answer, their condemnation is just. If you take a look at those four questions and answers, you could divide them up into two parts. The first two questions really reflect back on chapters one and two. They're looking backwards. You might think of them as as covenantal questions. Covenantal questions, because in, in different ways, they have to do with God's covenant promises to save. But starting with question three, Questions three and four, Paul is now looking forward. He's anticipating. He's actually answering questions about stuff he hasn't told you yet because he knows that the rumors about his teaching have already reached his audience. Like he knows that people have already slandered him. They've already twisted it. They've already gotten the wrong idea. And so he starts answering questions about doctrine that he's only hinted at that he's going to get to in the chapters ahead. So here at the beginning of three, we're looking back on where we've come, and then we're looking forward on where we're going. Those second questions, if the first questions are covenantal questions, you could think of the second set of questions as decretal questions. Decretal as in having to do with decrees, or think of God as a judge, right? Judges issue judgments, they issue decrees from the bench. Uh, Paul is saying God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, that salvation is not man's work through man's obedience, that it is God's work, that God does it. And that kind of teaching raises certain questions having to do with the justice of God. So covenantal concerns that you could boil down to kind of into one big question, are God's promises any good? Are God's promises any good? And then decretal concerns, the second set of questions, which you could boil down and say the question behind the questions is, is God even just? Are God's ways actually just? Are God's promises any good? Are God's ways actually just? Those are the two questions beneath the questions. So the first question that Paul entertains is this, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? His answer is much in every way. 
to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you were paraphrasing this, you might paraphrase it, and it's something like this. Isn't it pointless to be part of the church? Isn't it pointless to be part of the church? That's what's going on underneath this question. Remember, in Romans 2, Paul has just gotten finished saying that even though the Jews, the covenant community of God, even though they had the law, even though they had the sign of circumcision, that they are under the same condemnation as the Gentiles. In fact, because they had those things, it's actually worse. Like they knew more. More was expected of them. So their disobedience is actually worse than the disobedience of those who didn't have those things. If that's true, it kind of sounds like what Paul is saying is there's no advantage to being a Jew. Circumcision is basically meaningless. It has no value. That seems to be the point that he's making, and so that's the question. What advantage does the Jew have? What was the point of all of that Old Testament covenant history if it turns out you have no advantage in relation to the Gentiles? What was the value of circumcision, which we won't go into the details, but it's not painless. Why have to go through that if it was all for nothing? It was all for nothing. On a deeper level, these are questions that are calling into question God's covenant with Israel. Was it just a pointless exercise? Was the Old Testament essentially like a plan that failed? Like God got it wrong the first time, and now he's got to start over? Is that what it's really all about? And doesn't that make being a member of God's covenant community meaningless? That's the point. And Paul in his answer repudiates that idea. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? There is so much value in these things, he says, much in every way. It's not just there is one little thing. Like I realize it's mostly pointless, but there is one little thing that if you look carefully, you'll see the value of. No, it's hugely valuable. Much in every way, he says. He only gives one example, but he insists there are many values. Many good things about this. He'll get into more of them as the book progresses. But for now, he just touches on one. To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, with God's self-revelation, with God's word, with the whole sacramental system of the Old Testament. They were entrusted with those things, and that was of immense value. Being entrusted with the oracles of God. Even... The Jew, who in Paul's terms was only one outwardly, who had received the circumcision of the flesh, but was not circumcised in heart, even for him, it was much in every way. Even for him, there was immense value to be part of a community which had received God's revelation. Even for the unbeliever, in the midst of the covenant community, there were benefits to enjoy a great advantage. In Hebrews 6, you see this idea of advantage fleshed out a little bit more. In Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews gives uh, what theologians call an apostasy warning. It's a warning against rejecting your faith. 
a, a warning against walking away from the church, the covenant community into which you have entered. And in describing the benefits that this person has received, the language that's used is incredible. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, talks about the person who, who doesn't believe but is part of the visible church as having been enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Talking in, in language that, that, frankly, makes you a little bit uncomfortable to think that, that you would experience all these advantages just by being in proximity, by being in the context of the ministry of God's Word the administration of the sacraments, just to witness these things, to be part of that world, would be of such value. But how, how can he have had advantages, really, if ultimately he was not saved? Advantage to be more experienced, to be more prepared. And yet, but it's not pointless, there is still a value, despite the fact. Judgment, I'll stand before God and say, look, I should be saved because I was bad, is advantageous. All of that is good. None of it is. You need to have grown up in the church to find faith. In our own congregation, and the Spirit only worked in us much later. Advantages, yes, but the while recognizing that what matters is not the earthly, but the spiritualness, nullify the faithfulness of God, in other words, demands act. God promised to save the Jews in that great covenant. God promised to save, and maybe he wanted to. Maybe like that was the intention that he had. The promises of God. Doesn't that seem to follow what Paul is saying? In God's promises. How could we possibly trust in the promises that God made? Well, as Paul says, are unrighteous, then those promises, aren't they basically lies? essentially meaningless. Well, the words, essentially the gospel that he's proclaiming is something like that. Everyone is a liar. You have to keep in mind between earthly and spiritual things, between earthly circumcision and with the everlastingness of that kingdom. And you don't have to get to the New Testament then brought into captivity and the prophets over and over again kingdom. The physical kingdom was an emblem, a sign of a kingdom that does not rise or fall based on the obedience, on the righteousness of man, of the covenant, point to. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast leads to God's wrath and all humans are unrighteous Then God's promises of salvation aren't any over and over again that we are sinners. If we accept what Paul is saying to be righteousness of Christ is given to us by faith, we are made righteous, and it's the goodness of Christ that, that Paul will begin to unfold as the book of Romans. Righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to influence sin. And as he talks about that condemnation, as he gets deeper into that condemnation, shape over the fact that people are people and nobody's perfect. Whereas the God that we worship, we expect God to do on the last day. Eh, sure, people believed all sorts of Almost as if God has become unrighteous. This wrathful God, when he quotes Psalm 51. If you go back to Psalm 51 and you look at the comfort of that, 
is to justify your judgments, to show the And Paul seems to be teaching things that would make God himself unrighteous. That's the idea, and it's not one that we have a hard time on you. I haven't been happy and joyous about preaching through these catalogness of that light unless we see it in contrast to, to the ground. Righteous, you completely don't understand. You're not looking at this right on the basis of the question being asked. There could never be justice because there could never be a judge, God, whose wrath is turned against unrighteousness or what hope does righteousness have? Judgment is coming. It it just seems like such a dark message, Uh, an upside down world and put it right again. And that's the way the judgment of God, based on the actions that he himself reveals, in Scripture, becomes good news. The Bible is right about sin. What God does about it is kind of a variation on the third. God is saying, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good makes? In, in uh, rhetoric, is called a reductio ad absurdum. Essentially, because you're saying like, like the more evil there is, the more good will be produced through God's will so that God can do good. Don't we sort of help him out when we do this? We make a good thing in, in the Irish predicament back in the 1700s, and, and he doesn't mean it. He not condemn us for evil, according to Paul's logic. He would thank us. He would thank us because transgress as much as possible against the law. It's slanderous. It's also stupid. That's what you're arguing? Of course that's not what Paul is saying. Of course spoke to his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil, but God judged for that. There will be consequences. It still matters. You're still... talked about Jesus didn't sound right to his critics. He says the same objections about the way we talk about Jesus, then maybe we're talking... Now, I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of my life as a Christian. We sort of didn't talk about him the way that Paul talked about him. If you're getting the gospel right, people thinking you're encouraging sin, you're not talking about it right. Because you're not doing it the way Paul does it. I want you to see something in the way that Paul answers the questions. When Paul answers these questions, Paul does, you don't understand, he's saying, because you're not looking at this from the right perspective. When we believe things we shouldn't believe, we don't understand things that we ought to understand. But questions do something else as well. The questions we ask reveal standing. Because they're standing in the wrong place, as far as God is concerned. Saying, you are a sinner. And then every question that comes on whether or not I think it is just what you've said. And what Paul has just got, won't ask the right questions. But when it does, the right question becomes an be saved. Where must I go to be saved? Who must? Jesus comes into the world. Jesus comes as an answer to all of these questions. God promised to save, and he sent his son. His promises are good. Is he just? Are his ways just? Yes, they are. Because it was by living, abiding in God's way. Paul will say this in Romans 5, verse 8. He'll make it really clear. Is he good? Jesus says yes. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.